Uh, when I was in college, um, I had a job at the local YMCA, and uh, I had several different things that I got to do there. I had a, a period of time where I was the director of the youth sports program, and that was a lot of fun getting to play um, floor hockey and uh, flag football and other things like that with, with young people. That was a great time. I also worked in the after-school child care program. And let's just say that wasn't quite as much fun as the youth sports portion of my job was, but uh, hey, it was a, an opportunity to make some money and uh, have an influence on some young people's lives, and uh, it, was a, it was still a worthwhile time spent there for about a year and a half. Uh, but I'll never forget one time we did this little exercise with the, the, the kids after school where we had them all uh, cover their hands in a certain kind of paint until they were completely covered. And then we had them go into the bathroom and wash their hands real good with warm water and soap. And they would come out and their hands would look, you know, clean from all the paint. But we had a little trick up our sleeves. We would take them back into the bathroom and we turned off the light and turned on an ultraviolet black light. And you wouldn't believe how bad those kids were at washing their hands. Every little nook and cranny and crack and crevice of the human hand was just glowing in the dark from all the, the paint that on the surface looked like was gone, but in reality was still there. And that made an impact on me, that one that I haven't forgotten about. I mean, that was, my goodness, that was over 20 years ago. And I still remember it well, that not just because it reinforced to me the, the importance of, of good hand-washing techniques, um, but the, the impact of it on me was on the power of light to reveal and expose. And that's what I want to talk about here this morning from the book of John, chapter 8. We're continuing our series on the I Am statements of Jesus. We're going to be on page 860 if you happen to grab one of our guest Bibles in the back. I'm going to read beginning in verse 12 and conclude in verse 20. John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. The Pharisees replied, you are making those claims about yourself. Such testimony is not valid. Jesus told them, these claims are valid even though I make them about myself. For I know where I come from. I'm sorry, I know where I came from and where I am going, but you don't know this about me. You judge me by human standards, but I do not judge anyone. And if I did, my judgment would be correct in every respect because I am not alone. The Father who sent me is with me. Your own law says that if two people agree about something, their witness is accepted as fact. I am one witness, and my Father who sent me is the other. Where is your Father? they asked. Jesus answered, since you don't know who I am, you don't know who my Father is. If you knew me, you would also know my Father. Jesus made these statements while he was teaching in the section of the temple known as the treasury, but he was not arrested because his time or his hour had not yet come. Now, some of you may have noticed in your Bibles there that there is a, a line right here uh, between verses 11 and 12. And if you had flipped back a page or so, you would have seen there's also a line back in chapter 7 between verses 52 and 53. And this is true whether you have an NLT or perhaps you have an NIV 
Um, those of you who have a New American Standard or an English Standard, uh, you won't see a line. You'll see instead a pair of brackets that are sort of sectioning these verses off from the rest of the text there. And that's because uh, John chapter 7, verse 53, down through chapter 8, verse 11, while this account is definitely something that very well could have happened in some form or fashion, um, it was almost certainly not a part of John's original composition. Now, we don't have time this morning to get into all the nitty-gritty of why that may be the case. Um, but for the sake of understanding the text that I just read, it's important to understand that in John's original work, John chapter 8, verse 12, actually would have followed chapter 7, verse 52. Okay, So as John was composing his gospel, that's how the flow of the gospel would have come. Which means that Jesus, here in verse 12, is still addressing the same crowd at the Feast of Tabernacles that he began addressing all the way back in chapter 7. In fact, all the way back to verse 2, we know that Jesus is in, has come to Jerusalem for this feast. And, and there, uh, at the end of the feast, beginning there in verse 37, Jesus stands to address the people. Now, I've mentioned in the past when we've been working our way through John, and we've, we've noted how John will give us little indications of the, the event that Jesus is at or the, the time that surrounds Jesus' ministry. And I've pointed out that as John was composing his gospel, his primary concern was not a strict chronology of historical events. No, John's primary urgency is to... Is to, is to um, develop and to highlight certain theological themes and emphases. But, but in this situation, it's worth noting the particular historical significance of the timing of Jesus' remarks. When he says these things and where he says these things really does matter. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of Israel's three pilgrimage festivals that was instituted back in the Old Testament. And it took place in the fall, and it was, it was centered on the, the ingathering of the harvest, and it was a time for God's people to rejoice for God's provision and to pray for the coming season that the, the crops would be bountiful. But it was also designed as a remembrance and even as a rehearsal of Israel's time in the wilderness. So the, the people who would make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they would spend their, their week there uh, constructing and dwelling in temporary structures made of uh, leaves and branches. And each day in the temple, there would be special water drawing and light, uh, lamp lighting rituals that um, remembered how God provided water in the desert and how he guided his people from, from Egypt into the promised land by the light of a pillar of fire that, that went before them and, and, and protected them. And this is really important context when trying to grasp the significance of Jesus' actions here. Because like I mentioned a moment ago, in, in verse 37 of chapter 7, it says, On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and he proceeded to make two important declarations about himself. The first was this, that he gives living water and that he is the light. Not just of the temple. Not just of Jerusalem. Not just of Israel as a whole. No, Jesus is claiming to be the light of the world. I don't think you and I can really fully grasp the impact this might have had on this particular people in that particular place at that particular time. This metaphor of light is steeped in deep and rich Old Testament allusion. Psalm 27 taught the Israelites to sing, The Lord is my light and salvation. 
Psalms, Psalm 119 and Proverbs 6 declare that God's word and God's law are a light to guide the path of those who cherish him and his instruction. The, the prophets uh, Ezekiel and Habakkuk claim that God's light is shed abroad in his acts of revelation and salvation. In Psalm 44.3, light describes Yahweh's personal saving presence in action. It says, they did not conquer the land with their swords. It was not their own strong arm that gave them victory. No, it was your right hand, your strong arm, and the blinding light from your face that helped them, for you love them. Light is Yahweh's personal saving presence in action. And John picks up this, this light and darkness theme in his gospel in a powerful way. And he echoes all the way back in his prologue the very things the prophet Isaiah said concerning, concerning the coming servant of the Lord who would bring light to people living in darkness. As John says in chapter 1, verse 4, his life brought light to everyone. So with all of this, this backdrop, all of this sort of theological history and import and significance of the time and the place in which Jesus made this claim, the claims that he made about himself were stunning to the people that were there. But the thing about the way Jesus operates is he doesn't just drop this bomb, you know, you know, throw the grenade in there and then walk off. He doesn't make this claim about himself and then drop the mic and hit the road. No, he immediately follows this claim with its application. Look again there in verse 12. I am the light of the world, no mic drop, but instead, if you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Now, did you notice anything about the wording there? It's, it's actually sort of a twist on what John has already said about Jesus back in his prologue in chapter 1, verse 4. In chapter 1, verse 4, it's his life that is light. But here, in chapter 8, verse 12, his light leads to life. What's the deal with that? What's with this little play on words? Well, John's remarks back in chapter 1 deal with the power that Jesus has to reveal. The power that he has to reveal. He is, as John says in 1.9, the true light. Meaning he alone has the power to make God known in a saving way. This is a theme that's going to be repeated as we continue our way through the I am statements of Jesus during the season of Lent. The, the exclusivity of Jesus. Jesus alone is the light of the world. Jesus alone is the gate for the sheep. Jesus alone is the way and the truth and the life. He's making claims about himself that no one else in the world can claim about themselves. At least people can't make the claims about themselves and also be right. Someone has to be right and someone has to be wrong. Or at least both of them are wrong. But in this case, we believe Jesus is saying things about himself that are true. Now, it is true that in creation, God has uh, offered the light of what we call general revelation. And we've talked about this before. This, this shouldn't be new to everybody, at least, that, uh, that in nature, like we see in Romans chapter 1, it says that God has made sort of the, the reality of his existence and his power obvious to mankind. So people can go out and they can see the stars in the sky and they can see the, the order and the design and the beauty in creation and have at least some sense that there's more to it than what we can see. The, the grandeur of, of, of a mountain peak or the majesty of the sunrise coming up over the ocean 
These things speak to something beyond themselves. They point us to some deeper, greater personality behind our own. Paul says in Romans 1.20 that forever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. And so they have no excuse for not knowing God. You see, the light of general revelation is how basic truths about God can be found all throughout creation. And by the way, certain basic truths about God can even be found in other forms of religious beliefs and practices and, and philosophical insights. And, and this is actually affirmed by Paul in, in Acts chapter 17 in his discussion with the Athenians when he quotes their own philosophers as, as those who have discerned and recognized certain truths through creation and through the world that, as it is. They, they too have seen that God is the all-sufficient ground of being, that God is the, the source of all good, that, that God is the sovereign creator and, and the giver of life. Their own philosophers have discerned this, and that's because of the light that God provides in general revelation. As Paul said a few chapters back, God has, hasn't left us without evidence of himself and his goodness. His fingerprints are all over everything that he has made. And they are there for all to see. General revelation reveals truth about God. But because people are sinful, we take that light and we twist it. We reshape it. And we begin crafting other things according to our own sensibilities, according to our own sinful desires. And so because of that, general revelation is not enough to save no, what we need is special revelation. Special revelation directly from God that gives context and, and gives clarity to, to the revelation that's already out there in creation. General revelation might tell us that there's more to reality than what you and I can, can perceive with the five senses, but you and I need special revelation to disclose to us the who behind it all. And Jesus is making the claim at the Feast of Tabernacles, that he is God's special revelation to the world. He alone is the true light that makes God known. And the thing about Jesus' claim here is, is that he's not just the light of the world because of the things that he says and the things that he does. Although, of course, the things that he says and the things that he does do reveal of course, we, we have his words, we have his signs, we have his miraculous actions, and we've said all along that all of these things point to, to the reality of who he is and who God is. It's, his whole life is an, is an act of revelation, but even his very person is revelatory. And that's amazing to me, that it's not just the things he says and does, but it's who he is as the word of God himself, the very self-expression of the Father to see and to know and to love Jesus, he will later insist, is to see and to know and to love the very Father himself. And that's not because Jesus is making claim that, that he is the Father, as if the Father is, is you know, in their presence just wearing some sort of mask or disguise. He's pretending to be the Son in this moment, but it's really just the Father along. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying I and the Father are the same person. He's saying the life of the Father is in the Son, and the Father wills to make himself known through the Son. Isn't that fascinating to you? That God the Father 
is in God the Son, and he's making himself known through another person. Now, we began diving into this a little more deeply this last Wednesday night in Wednesday night Bible study. I, I think I detected a groan out there for those of you who were there that night. I feel your pain. It's, it's, it's hard to think about these things. It, when we start to, to, to really listen to the things that Jesus is saying about himself, we're, we're sort of forced to think about these things because he doesn't leave us any choice. You cannot talk in any meaningful way about Christian monotheism. Not just monotheism, but Christian monotheism. And unless you're willing to bump up against and dive into the mysteries of the triune nature of God. As we sang already this morning, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. It's not just some sort of artificial thing that, that people in the past came up with to try to sound fancy or, or deep. It's the reality of God's nature revealed in his Son. The one who came from the Father, the one the Father is in, who prays to the Father and is one with the Father. What is going on? And we may not feel comfortable with it, and we may be confused by it, but we have to, conf- we have to face it nonetheless. That God is not some singularity out there, but a community of persons who are mutually dwelling in each other. It's the greatest mystery in all the world. And yet it's the most important one. It is, it is that mystery that precedes all of creation. Everything comes from this, this communion of persons. And those of you who have given your life to Jesus, that is your destiny. A lifetime of communion with the triune God, who, by the way, by his spirit, abides in you and you and him even today. And as the word of the Father in the flesh, Jesus is the ultimate revelation. Jesus is the ultimate self-expression. Jesus is the fullness of God's self-disclosure of himself to the world. And so John will say in his prologue, as, as simple as a few words, his life, who he is, is light. Four words that, that summarize a, 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 an eternity of mystery. His life is light. God's special revelation about himself. This is so important. Not just for people dressed up nicely on Sunday morning sitting in a, you know, a row of seats at church. This is important to the world because the Bible is emphatic that because of sin, the condition of humanity is that we are in spiritual darkness. Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is like total darkness. They have no idea what they are stumbling over. That's because sin has the effect of darkening our understanding and destroying our spiritual sight. It blinds us to the things that are most real. It blinds us to the things that are most true, the things that are most good. It causes people, to borrow words from from Moses to Job, to grope around like a blind man in the dark. A couple of years ago, I went to tuck my daughter in at night. She'd been reading in her room, and it was time to turn off the light and go to sleep. So I came in and told her good night, and she turned off the light before I could leave the room. And I didn't leave a light on in the hallway, and she knows where this is going. She's already smiling. So, so the light's off in the hallway, 
and she turns the light off in her room, and I'm talking, I might as well have been in a cave at the center of the earth. There was no light in this room. She's got the blackout curtains. There's no light in there. So she turns out the light, and I turn to go, and I'm like, like trying, like I'm, I'm literally groping for the door. And as I'm doing this, she turned the light back on, and there's me standing in the dark like this. And she just laughed and laughed and laughed. Had I had my arms around the door like that? So the door was here, and I had my arms. I was a mess. So oftentimes when I'm telling her goodnight, she reminds me of the time that, that I was in the dark like that. But that's, that's, that's the point, right? That in the dark, we're like mummies, aren't we? We're just walking around trying not to fall or crash into something. And the, the point in the scriptures is that people bereft of light are dead things walking. Dead things walking. Jesus himself referred to eternal separation from God as what? Outer darkness. Outer darkness. In his commissioning of the Apostle Paul in Acts 26, he said this, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. Satan, Paul will insist elsewhere, is the God of this world who has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ who is the exact likeness of God. Paul knew that people are enslaved by their very nature to the world and to the flesh and to the devil, and they are in need of the light that Christ is and provides. As he says in Ephesians 4.18, their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. And it is into this condition of the human predicament. People who are blind, people who are imprisoned, people who are enslaved, who have no awareness of of what reality ultimately is. They cannot see what is real or true or good. And the God of this world is actively working to keep them cut off from the source of light. It is into this situation that Christ stands at the Feast of Tabernacles and declares, I am the light of the world. I've come that you no longer have to walk in darkness. I reveal the truth of God. He alone is able to make God known in a saving way. And like the fire of God's presence in the cloud, guiding his people into the promised land, Jesus guides the spiritually blind into the light of his salvation. Light leading to life that lasts forever. I think the prophet Zechariah anticipates this moment in John chapter 7 and 8 best. You see, the prophet Zechariah in chapter 14, in a prophecy just rife with eschatological and messianic overtones, foresaw a day when the light of God would shine and life-giving water would flow. 
And here steps Jesus onto the scene. With the light and the water rituals of the Feast of Tabernacles fresh on everyone's mind, and he declares, I am the light of the world, offering light that leads to life. And anyone who is thirsty and believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And John tells us in a parenthetical statement that when Jesus said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to those who believed in him. Jesus is the light who reveals God. Jesus is God's personal saving presence in action. He imparts the knowledge of God, but also the very life and power of God. The one who who tells the blind man to see is the very one who has the power to illuminate the darkness spiritually that you and I might find ourselves in. He has the power to transform the very darkness that you and I are. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, 8, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of the light. Through Christ and by his spirit, you and I can be free. I hope you hear the, the hope of this. You and I can be free from every darkness and sin. Every bit of it. Your testimony, because of your trust in Jesus, can be the exact same as that of Charles Wesley who penned arguably the most inspired lyric in the history of Christian hymnody. And we've, we've recited the words and we've sung the words and we've heard them in multiple varieties of ways over the years and they resonate just the same at today as they always have when he says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound by sin in nature's night. But thine eye diffused a quickening ray, and I woke in the dungeon flamed with light, and my chains fell off, and my heart was free, and I rose and went forth and followed thee. Jesus exposes every lie, and he leads into all truth. His truth dispels all doubt. His truth dispels all fear. His truth conquers every wayward thought. He shows us the fullness of God's heart, and then he turns and he imparts God's heart to us. He manifests the presence and the power of God to save, and then his presence abides within us, and his power gives us victory over all sin. His word reveals the boundary lines of how life should be lived, and then he gives us the power that we need to live all of life by them. And so the question is, are you this morning, by faith, living in the fullness of the light that Christ is and provides? Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That ultraviolet light that I referred to a few moments ago, so many years ago in my life was, was special then and it's special to me still because it left an impression. <laughs> I haven't forgotten it. In fact, I don't want to say every time I wash my hands, but nearly every time I wash my hands, I remember that moment. I promise. It's, it was meant for the children, but I think it meant more to me. And that light was special because it had the power to reveal and to expose in a way that nothing else could. And in the same way, 
Jesus is special. Jesus is unique. Jesus stands alone in how he reveals, how he exposes both the truth about God, but also the truth about your life and my life. Perhaps that's why John says in his prologue, he came to his own, but his own received him not. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for fear their sins will be exposed. There's a decision that lies before us all today, isn't there? There's a choice. And you may not like it, but the person of Jesus demands it. He leaves no other options. You have to choose. And the choice is this, to believe in the light and walk in the light with all of your life. You can't say you believe in Jesus. You can't assent to some sort of intellectual list of doctrines. You can't say you believe in Jesus and then continue to live however you want. Jesus didn't just say, you know, think a certain way about me. No, he says, walk in the light. Live life in the light of who I am. Live life abiding by the the truths of my words, the things that I have to say about your life are true. Even though they're hard, even though they're not convenient, even though you might want to go your own way, you might think that, yes, in this area of life, the words of Jesus make a lot of sense. You know, I'll live according to them here, but in this area of my life, I want to have control over that. Jesus says, no. When you come to me, you no longer walk in darkness. And so the choice lies before you to believe in Jesus, to walk in the light that he is, or reject it and remain in darkness. It is, a very, it is as stark of a, t- a choice as light is from dark. Believe and walk in light, or reject it and remain in darkness. And the consequences of how we decide could not be greater. As Jesus himself says at the end of our passage, and then a, ver- a couple of verses later, if you knew me, you would also know my Father, And in verse 24, unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. Do you believe this morning in who Jesus claimed to be? Will you allow him to show you the Father? Will you allow him to expose what's really in your heart? Will you let him take that black light of his of his truth and expose all of you? Will you let him do that this morning? Will you let the light that he is and offers his God-saving presence in action to guide you into the salvation he has provided for you? Will you abide moment by moment completely with all of your life, not compartments of your life, all of your life, In the light of his word, the true light has come into the world. His life is the light of men, and his light leads to life that never ends. Let us pray.
Father, we thank you that you have not left yourself without testimony in creation. In fact, your, your thumbprints are on everything. Every leaf, every grain of sand, every cloud in the sky, every drop of water, all of creation declares your majesty. And every one of us is able to walk out of here today and look at the sky and feel the breeze, consider the sun and the stars and the galaxies and the universe, and have some deep sense that we are insignificant in this universe. And that there's something about it that is bigger and more grand and more powerful and more meaningful than any one of us could claim for ourselves. And yet, because of sin, we make ourselves the epicenter of it all. And we think our way is the right way. And God, if God exists, must be conformed to my image and not the other way around. Lord, would you shed light on that darkness? Would you shed light on the, the death that darkness is? Will you expose every wrong thought and desire in our minds and hearts? Would you reveal them for what they are? They're not light leading to life. They're, they're darkness leading to death. Jesus, make yourself known by the power of your spirit to every person in here this morning. That we could all say that we have received the special revelation of God about himself. That if we want to know what God is really like, we look no further than in the face of his son. And by the power of, of his spirit, that life becomes our life. And we who were once darkness can be light in God. And if that is true for us, Lord, then may we walk as children of light. May we turn completely 180 degrees away from anything that resembles darkness in our lives. Lord, may your light not only expose, may your light transform us into your own image. That we might be salt and light to the world around us. Lord, would you, by the power of your spirit, connect all the dots of these things together in, a, in such a simple, significant way that all we have to do is just say yes to Jesus and all of it becomes true about our lives. That's all you ask for us to do. Not to fully grasp the, the triune nature of God and have all the fancy words and concepts down pat. No, you just want to be known and you want us to love you and to trust you. Lord, help us to do just that as we respond in these remaining moments through, through worship and song, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.